0: It came to pass that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I am taken from thee. And Elisha said, Let a double portion
1: of thy spirit
0: be upon me. morning, if you have your Bibles, your iPhone, your Android, turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, where the title of the message is, Getting Ready for a Miracle. Getting Ready for a Miracle. How many today believe God works miracles? Raise your hand. All right. Yeah, this is a faith-filled crowd. I love it already. How many today came in here and you need God to work a miracle for you? Raise your hand. Just as an act of faith, you needing a miracle, you've come to the right place. There's two ways God works in our life. One is providence. Providence is God sovereignly coordinating the laws of nature and the decisions and behavior of people to accomplish his will. This is supernatural. This is amazing. God takes your thoughts, the thoughts of people, the actions of people, the words of people, and the natural laws of nature. And he works them all together to accomplish his will in your life and my, my life. It's an amazing work of God. He is working All the time. This is this is the basis of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God's working providentially. But then a miracle is when God interrupts the natural course of events with his power for the purpose of accomplishing his will. So God intersects time. He intersects the laws of nature, and he does what would not normally happen by way of his power in keeping with his will to do a miracle in the life of a person or in the lives of a group of people. And when we come to 2 Kings chapter 4, this is a very interesting chapter because it's a chapter that features or focuses on God's miracle-working power in the lives of people, and he works in several ways. He works relative to debt. He works relative to death. He works relative to natural disasters or drought, and we're going to see those as we walk through the chapter over the next three weeks. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 and we're going to see how God works in the life of a widow. As we look at it, we're going to learn three principles regarding miracles and I hope you write them down because these would be universally true in your life and in my life and they help us understand how God works and what our part is in God's working. Although God could do anything on his own, God's heart, his desire is not to do it by himself but to partner with you and I as faith rises in our heart, as you and I participate in what we know to be his will. So, three principles. Number one, miracles start with problems. Ever heard of one of those? Ever had one of those? You know, sometimes we have a tendency to say, God, I want to see a miracle in my life. We hear the testimonies like, God, I want a miracle. And God says, great, I'm going to send you a problem. And we're like, no, wait a minute, God, that's not what I wanted. But you can't have a testimony without a test. Your problem is the material for a miracle. And miracles always start with problems. The words of that old gospel song, if I never had a problem, I'd never know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God can do. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. He's a God who does miracles. Let's look at it, 2 Kings 4, verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as slaves. This woman faces one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a mate not only her husband, but the father of her two sons, and now she is destitute. Josephus, the Jewish historian, and some rabbis say that the husband of this woman was none other than Obadiah, who is mentioned in First Kings chapter 18, he hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets. So Jewish history or tradition says that's who it was, we can't, who it was. We can't confirm that, but it's certainly possible. Whoever her husband was, he's gone. And she has nothing but her two sons and the memory of a godly husband. I think it's very interesting when you look at it, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. It's a very interesting statement. One of the great legacies any of us will leave in life is a legacy that he or she was on fire for God. That they loved the Lord, that they served the Lord faithfully, that they revered the Lord. I want that to be said about me when I pass away. John revered the Lord. Of course, I'm planning on going in the rapture, but it's a wonderful legacy to have that said about you. And so he was a man who revered the Lord. But let me say something. He was a man with all due respect to his walk with the Lord who failed to provide for his family. I think this is important for you and I to give thought to. He failed to provide in the event of an untimely death. This is a biblical principle that you and I are to think about these kind of things. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All that to say this, if you're the breadwinner for your family, the question is, have you provided for your family in the event of your death? You say, what do you mean? Have you set aside money? Have you created a plan? Let's put it this way. Have you bought life insurance? Let me just say, I'm not attached to anybody. I'm not selling for anybody. I don't get a commission off this service. (laughs) But some of you have not even thought about it. And you got to think, what's going to happen when they're left with having to pay for a funeral? What's going to happen in the Weeks and months, as they're grieving and sorrowing, what's going to happen to them financially? You have to give thought to these things. It's right to do it. It's godly to do it. It's important to do it. Let me ask another question. Have, have you created a will that speaks to the disposition of, of your property and, and your personal effects and how that's going to happen? Otherwise, do you realize it's going to go through the court system? And again, that's going to be grief on top of grief for your family. It's a tragedy to lose a loved one. But that grief and that sorrow is multiplied when there's a lack of preparation. I was talking to somebody last week. and and their fathers retired from the ministry, and they made this comment. They said every time he went on a mission trip, and he went on a lot of them, what he did is he had out on the table where his wife could see it. He had his life insurance policies. He had all of these instructions. So in the event something happened, heaven forbid, and nothing did, but if it did, she would know exactly what to do. And this son made the comment, it's because he cared for his family it's a part of caring to prepare for that that unexpected tragedy of of an untimely death look at it again in 1st Kings 4 and verse 1 she says your servant my husband is dead you know that he revered the Lord but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves This is a desperate situation, not only because the boys would be sold into slavery and that would shape the remainder of their life, but for her, it would be catastrophic in that in that day, a son was your social security. A son was the one who would care for you in your old age, and now that would be taken from her. Her sons would be taken from her, and that in the midst of the tragedy of losing her husband. The creditor comes. He wants to be paid. She's trying to say, hey, listen, give me time. Listen, you you need to understand my plight. And, And he's heartless. He's saying, lady, if I wanted a story, I'd go to the library. Give me my money. And so she has a massive problem. Maybe today you have a problem. Maybe today you're in a situation not as dire or maybe as dire. The circumstances may vary, but you don't know where you're going to turn. You don't know what you're going to do. It's a problem. And you laid awake last night wondering what the answer was. And here's the good news today. Miracles start with problems. And if you've got a problem, we've got a God who can solve it. If you've got a need, we've got a God who can meet it. If you need a miracle, we've got a God who does those miracles start with the problem. Number two, miracles often involve what you have. Look at it in verse two. Unless you're applied to her, how can I help you? That is such a great question. You know, when you see somebody in need, a good thing to ask them is, how can I help you? Because the fact of the matter is, if you don't know them, you don't know how they can help them until you ask that question. You may be giving them help they don't need, help that's not beneficial. You care, sure enough. But how can you know how to help people unless you ask them the question and they tell you how you can help them? So important for that. I mean, I was thinking just on Friday, I was, Debbie and I ran over to uh, um, store to get some concrete. We're doing a little, I was doing a little project. And so Debbie just rode with me. So we're, um, we're stopping to get gas. We get gas, we see a, um, a woman, she's over on the corner of the parking lot. I reach for my wallet. I've already given away all my money. I'd love to tell you it was to people in need, but I, if Debbie is a person in need, then that's where it went. <laughs> so I'm, I'm fulfilling 1 Timothy 5.8 I'm taking care of my family but so I go and I, I grab my wallet and look I have no money so I go up to her and I just say hey um, are you okay first of all what's your name she's hesitant to give it I said hey I'm a pastor so my wife is, is in the truck there And uh, how can I help you? It's a wonderful question. It's a good question to ask. What can you do for a person? What do they need? And, And eventually she began to tell us, and we were able to help her with some things that she needed to be able to encourage her. I'm just simply encouraging you, when you see a need, ask people what you can do for them. So here is this woman, and Elisha asks, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Let me just say this. Often, not every time, but often God's work in our lives begins with where we're at and what we have. She said, your servant has nothing except a little oil. I want you to notice he starts with where she's at and what she has, she doesn't think she has anything. And honestly, too many times, that's how we look at our situation. We're not careful. We can think we have nothing. Rather than thinking about what we do have, we start with what we don't have. But always, I found this to be true, that when it comes to God working in my life, God knows what we don't have. He's interested in what we do have. And it may look small in comparison to the need, but when you give God what you have, that is the start of God doing a miracle in your life, of multiplying what you have. I mean, honestly, why would God give any of us more if we don't use what we have? For some this morning, let me say this. Your financial miracle will start when you stop looking at what you don't have and start giving God what you do have that there is, there is. you see that over and again in the Bible. You you watch Moses, and, and God says to him, Moses, what do you have? And he thinks all he has is a wooden staff in his hand. And God says, throw it to the ground. It becomes a snake. He picks it up. Later, that staff is gonna split the Red Sea in half. Later, that staff is gonna strike a rock, and a river of water is gonna come out. God starts with what you and I have. And he's able to multiply it to meet our need. You remember the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus told the disciples, feed the people. They said, we don't have anything. He said, well, go look. See what you have. They go all day. And then at the end of the day, they say, all we have is this little boy's sack lunch. Five loaves, two fishes. But what is that with so many? And Jesus said, give me what you have. And when they gave him what they had, it fed 5,000 men besides the women and children. And there were 12 basketfuls left over because God is a God of more than enough. He is a God who is generous. He is a God of miraculous supply. But it begins when you give him what you have. Verse two, notice. Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Now, what are we talking about when we're talking about little oil? Literally, the word in the Hebrew is anointing oil. I want to suggest to you, the only thing she has is the last thing her husband left her, and that was his anointing oil as a prophet. So she's saying, all I have is just a little bit of anointing oil. That's all I've got, but your miracle will start with what you have. Number three, miracles always require a step of faith. Are you going to step out? Look at it. Verse three, Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour oil into all the jars and as each is filled put it to the side she's got this she's borrowed this does that make sense how can the little bit of this how can it fill this how can one it doesn't make sense You see, God's math is different than our math. God's science is different than our science. I'm not saying science isn't real and true. I believe in truth. All truth is God's truth. And yet at the same time, there are some things about his truth that we just don't know and will not know until we get to heaven. And then we'll say, oh my goodness, it was there, I never knew it. And a part of it is faith. So she could have said... That doesn't make sense, and if I don't understand it, I'm not going to do it. Can I just say that's where some of you are today? God wants to do a miracle in your life, but you're debating whether it makes sense. You're debating whether you agree with the spiritual principle. You're debating about whether you understand it, and if I can just say it, that's what stops a lot of people from receiving from God. Honestly, tithing. Some of you don't tithe, and it's a faith step. It takes faith to activate tithing. But you're saying, it doesn't make sense that if I give 10% of my income away, I'll have more with 90% than I'd have with 100%. It doesn't make sense, you're right. But when you couple it with faith and the power of God, it's true. I've said many times, if I weren't a Christian, I'd still tithe. It's the single best investment you'll ever make with your money. Why? Because it works. I've seen it time and again. I've talked to accountants. I've talked to bankers who said they didn't. I've said you should. They tried it. They said, I can't believe it. It works. It does work. Believe it. It does work. It's the way it works for healing. What? How does it make a difference that you come forward, you're anointed with the soil, and you're healed? doesn't make scientific sense, but it works. It's true. How can it be true that when you get baptized in water, all of a sudden there's an open heaven? How does getting wet create an open heaven? I don't know, but it's true. See, that's how it is with all the things that we do with the Lord. We have to take a step of faith. And if you have to understand it before you do it, then faith will be impossible for you and you'll receive very little from God as well. You can't worry about looking foolish. Can you imagine? She's asking her sons to get get all these pots and to bring them back, and the people are saying, "What is? What does your mother need the pots for?" Um, she's wanting us to get them. Well, what does she want them for? Uh, I don't know. Uh, she's going to fill them with um, oil. How? I I um, I don't want to say anymore. You know, your, your kids ever like? I don't want to say anymore. You know. So all of a sudden. It, it, she looks foolish. You're going to get pots and you don't have any oil and you think you're going to have oil in the pots. It doesn't make any sense. You can't be afraid of looking foolish because God's wisdom, he loves to confound the wisdom of the world. He loves to use what looks foolish to man. He, he loves to to... Just show his power. And the natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit. He cannot, for they are spiritually discerned. First Corinthians 2.14 People, if, if you're expecting people to understand what you're doing as a Christian, forget it. They don't understand. It's okay. They'll learn when they see God bless. They'll learn when they see God work. I mean, it's like that saying, and I... It involves Noah, but it's such a great saying. Faith looks foolish until it starts to rain. You know what? When the blessing comes, then people begin to understand. Look at it. Second Kings 4 verse 5, she left him and afterward shut the door behind her and her sons. It's a very interesting phrase in this chapter. It's, you say, what's so interesting about shut the door? It's used three times in the chapter. Every time in relation to a miracle. It's used here in this verse. It's used again later in the, in the chapter where the Shunammite, she and her husband, Elisha prophesy, she'll have a son. The son dies, and, and he, is a, he is a teenager. He's a boy, uh, 10 to 12 years old. And she puts him on the man of God's bed. He's gone. He's, he's far away. And her husband says, is everything all right? And this is what happens. She says, everything's all right. She shuts the door. And then when Elisha comes, he goes in. The boy's laying on the bed. He shuts the door. Why is she shutting the door? Because there are some times in our life we can't afford the doubt of the critics if our faith is going to be strong. Sometimes what we have to do is we have to guard our faith. You not only guard your heart, you guard your faith. And you'll never have a strong faith if you're constantly listening to the critics and their unbelief. you got to feed your faith. You've got to starve your doubt. And sometimes you got to limit the voices that will say what they say because of where they're at spiritually, either in their unbelief or their undeveloped faith. And you have to say, I can't afford, I need what I need from God. And in order to have that, my faith is going to need to be as strong as it can. And I can't have the distraction of doubt around me if I'm going to receive from God something that's going to come to me by way of faith. Sometimes you can't listen to the doubt. Sometimes you got to doubt your doubts. Sometimes you have to silence the doubters. Doubt dies if left unexpressed. And so she closes the door because she knows that she can't have the doubters watching, ridiculing, saying things. She closes the door to keep the people who don't believe out. Smith Wigglesworth put it this way. It is an evident fact that one man in a meeting filled with unbelief can make a place for the devil to have a seat. Oh, my goodness. Guard your heart. What fills your heart, faith or unbelief? What is it that you believe? What is it that you don't believe? What is it that you're thinking? Even right now, in a message, that's talking about faith. Are you allowing it to feed your faith, or are you arguing within yourself in a way that is feeding your doubts and diminishing your faith? Sometimes... In order to keep your faith strong, you got to shut the door to the doubters. She shut the door. Look at it. Verse five. She let him, she left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. And they brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. I want you to notice some things about this miracle. First of all, she had to prepare for her miracle. She had to get ready. I mean, I read that story about Andrew and he gets the bad word from the ER, but what does he do? He comes to church with an expectation that no matter what he's heard about his situation, there's a God who turns it around. He's preparing for his miracle. I think of the story of Megan last week. She, she said they have been trying for five years to conceive. At the week of power, they, they met a man who asked them, are you trying to conceive? And they said, yes. He said, I have a word from the Lord for you. Prepare a place. They have a choice. They can say, well, that's crazy. Well, what will people think? They'll think we're crazy. They'll say, oh, those poor, deceived, deranged people. They should have never gone to the weak of power or they can do what they did. They went home, they took their office, they converted it to a nursery, and then on July 23rd, there was a word of knowledge given during the first service for couples struggling with infertility. They stood for prayer, and one and a half weeks later, they were pregnant, and now three weeks later, they've seen an ultrasound of their baby, and God has provided, but it started with them preparing for a miracle. You gotta prepare. Can I just say, part of the way you prepare is to walk by faith. Everybody's got a choice. Everybody's got a decision. Everybody can choose. You can choose to believe God and believe there's a God of miracles, and you do it in the midst of over 3,000 testimonies, let me remind you. Or you can choose to say, I don't think so. I doubt it. And you receive little from God. She chose to prepare. Number two. She determined the size of her miracle. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if she gets just a few, if she only says, well, this is a big one, that's all I'd eat, that's all she gets. She determined the size of her miracle. I think many times this is true, that you and I, by the way we approach God, by the faith with which we believe God, Determine what we'll see God do in our life. I can remember when we were when we were giving to the, the building fund, different campaigns, we've had so many, but every time when I'd write a check, I would pray over the check and I would say, Lord, you see this and it's an investment. Your word says you'll never owe a man anything and I can't wait to see what you're going to do both in the meeting of the need of the church and in our own life as you multiply back to us what we've given you. I mean, I'm preparing for miracle. I'm getting ready. I'm determining the size of the miracle. I determine it. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow generously, you reap generously. And In many respects, people determine the size of their miracle. The number of jars she asked for determined the number of jars that would be filled. You could put it this way. Little faith, little blessing. Big faith, big blessing. Number three, God's blessings was only on the flask of oil as she poured it. The minute she stops pouring, she's pouring here. And can you imagine? She's like, oh my, that thing is full. She starts pouring here. She could have been saying, you know what? This makes no sense. I don't even know why I'm doing it. But now that one's full. And she's looking at this and she's saying, can you believe it? And then she goes to the next one. And she's like, this is insane. And then she goes to the next one and she's watching the oil go in there. Her sons are watching it because let me tell you what, when you as a parent walk by faith, your kids are going to see it and and it will change them for the rest of their life. Our kids have seen us step out in faith. Our kids have seen us believe God for impossibilities. Our kids have heard us talk and then have watched it happen. Listen, when you as a parent are walking by faith, your children are going to see it and it's a witness to them. The oil, as long as you poured it out. Listen, you want to, financially it's true, as long as you pour it out, God's going to pour it back. If if you pour it out, if you say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do my part, that's true in coming forward for healing. That's true in coming forward for salvation or rededication. It's true in getting baptized. Number four, mathematically and scientifically, it didn't make sense. I just want to ask you this. I thank God for science. I thank God for medicine. But I also know this. Doctors are human doctors. And there's a divine physician. There is a divine physician. There's a God who does what human doctors maybe can or cannot do. I've seen him do both. And at some point, as a follower of Christ, you just got to decide, am I in or out? God Do believer, don't I? And as your faith is, be it unto you. Jesus said that. At some point, you got to decide what what does the Bible teach on walking with God. Second Corinthians five seven says this: We live by faith, not by sight. That's how, it, it's it's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. It's the opposite. Verse six, when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. Verse seven, she went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left. She had more than enough. sir. God. He's a generous God. He delights. You know, listen, let me, let me say this because we're going we're to pray for healing here in just a moment. He delights in showing himself powerful. And more for you isn't less for somebody else. Because at times I read testimonies and I feel bad for people if they really think this way. Like, you know, I didn't because I felt somebody else deserved the miracle more than me. That has nothing to do with it. Like God only has, I only have a hundred miracles today and a hundred people get them and that's it. And, and you, took, you took Sally so she doesn't get one. That's not how it works. All power is his, he's omnipotent. That means all power is his. And when he expends power, he never loses power. No demonstration of power diminishes power because it's all his all things are for him and to him and through him. It's all his. He's a big God. He's a generous God. He's a miracle working God. He's a God of a miraculous supply. And not just in a widow who knew Elisha, but in your life, he's a God of miraculous.